Amen. If you will, turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Amos. It's probably in your hard copy of your Bible, a couple of pages that are very crisp, because you probably haven't visited the book of Amos very often in your life following Jesus. The book of Amos, to give you some reference to if you're scrolling looking for it, is after the big prophetic book of Ezekiel, and then you have a smaller book of Daniel, then you have Hosea, we talked about that a few weeks ago. You have Joel, we talked about that last Sunday in this series on major messages from minor prophets. And then you hit the book of Amos. If you go to Obadiah or Jonah, you've gone too far. And if all that confuses you, turn to page 650 in the blue yellow Bible in the seat rack in front of you, or use your phones as well. Amos is like the coworker that you have at your job, that you know their name, you may even know kind of what they do within your company, but you have no idea or details of the rest of their life. It's kind of like Amos, like probably if I asked you if you've been following Jesus for a little bit, you would say like, oh yeah, Amos is in the Old Testament, I got that part, and Amos is a prophet, I, okay, I understand that. But then beyond that, it's like, I don't know, I read it one day or a couple days when I did the Bible in a year type thing. But what exactly is Amos all about? And so my hope (laughs) in like 27 minutes is to cover nine chapters of the book of Amos. So bear with me in this. Uh, I want us to read uh, a section together of Amos. It comes from Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And I seem to have lost my clicker. So, guys, if you could flip it for me. Pastor problem when you lose your PowerPoint clicker. Uh, But look at this passage here. What I'd like us to do is to read the words together out loud so I don't feel as dumb when I'm reading the harder words, okay? So we're all going to do this together. We're all in. Here we go. So read with me together. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, the Lord roars from Zion, and from Jerusalem he utters his voice, and the shepherds' pasture grounds mourn. And the summit of Carmel dries up. So it gives you a little sense of what this book is all about. Is that it says the lion roars from Zion. It's meaning Jerusalem. And the lion is not roaring a sense of approval here. The lion, the lion is roaring, thank you, Ryan Rail, love him. Um, the lion, <laughs> amazing guy. The lion is roaring judgment on the nation of Israel. And so this gives us a little clue of the tone of Amos. So who is this famous Amos? A couple of you got it. Amos had a prophetic ministry 750 years before the birth of Jesus, about 28 years before the nation was captured by the Assyrians. He was a prophet around the same time as Isaiah and Hosea. His name can be translated to mean bearer or burden, and that's really what he was. He was a bearer of a tremendous burden as he pronounced judgment 
on the people of Israel. Amos, as you caught in uh, that first verse, was a shepherd herder. Or another way to say that is he was a farmer. Again, a little kind of review for you is that at this point after King Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into two. You had the southern kingdom, which was made up of Judah. And you had the northern kingdom, <coughs> which was called Israel. So Amos is from Tekoa, which is about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. And this is where he farmed and tended after his livestock. Jumping right into the book in chapter 7, Amos says this to one of the religious leaders, Amaziah. He says, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. Now, in our Orange County culture, being a farmer is kind of cool. I just walked by, our family did a little preemptive uh, Father's Day walk on Friday, and we were walking around the Orange Circle, and we stumbled upon, maybe you've seen this before, right behind Chapman, is there's actually a farm in Orange. And so we saw this farm, and we're like, that's amazing. Like, our culture just is really, here in Orange County, is like, just loves farms, right? Farm to tables, what the end thing is at all the restaurants. I mean, how many of you in little Orange County, in your little plot in your backyard, own chickens, or are doing some type of vegetable growing? I mean, there's like lots of us, right? But we all kind of dream of being farmers, and, and that's the end thing. And yet, in the culture of Amos's day, being a farmer wasn't necessarily the most noble of professions. And we read that he was in Tekoa, 10 miles south of Jerusalem. So he was on the edge, really, of the nation of Judah. And so farmers, as they chose or acquired their land, this wouldn't be one of the prime places to care for land or even to own land because you're on the edge of society in Tekoa. And so, frankly, you're the first village to be attacked by any foreign nations. And so this is where Amos finds himself, 10 miles, 10 miles south of Jerusalem, farming his land, tending to his sheep, kind of living a normal, ordinary life. And then God calls him and says, I'm going to pull you out of your day-to-day -day and you're going to become a prophet. The farmer becomes a prophet. Can you imagine what Amos would have been feeling in those moments? Like, no, 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 I'm good, God. I'll just honor you by tending to my little crops right here. Uh, I'm fine. There's certainly someone that's more educated than me, more eloquent, more the life of the party, has more name recognition. Uh, certainly you can use somebody else, God. And yet God says, I choose you, Amos. Have you ever felt small in your life? Have you ever felt like you're not qualified or you're overlooked? Like me every day. <laughs> Last weekend, uh, Marie and I were in New York. And we were doing the tourist thing and we walked by the Trump One World Tower. And so I...
Here's a golden calf to worship. Oh, enjoy, hope you enjoyed your stay in Israel. Here's a golden calf to worship. Amos accuses the nation of Israel in chapter 5 of, of really three things. Idol worship, sexual immorality. He says a father and a son take the same woman. And then oppression of the poor. He said at your city gates you swindle the poor. You change the books so they have to pay more than they really owe. You charge them more debt than, than is just. You build for yourself, Amos says, summer and winter houses, and yet step over the poor and marginalized, the forgotten. God pulls no punches with this nation. And you think through the scriptures, and particularly the people of Israel, why were they so susceptible to idol worship? I mean, they've been delivered, rescued from God so many times. And yet they keep going back to worshiping false things. I came across a, a great essay from a theologian named David Paulison. In fact, maybe on your phone, just Google this title of this essay, and it will be the first thing that pops up. Or, or write it down and read it later. It's a pretty academic essay, but there's such gold in what David writes. He's a believer. He actually just passed away of cancer last month. But he writes in here, he said, really... There's three reasons why the Israelites and all of us are so susceptible to big and subtle idols in our lives. One is our flesh. Internally, we yearn to worship something. And God is the thing that we're created to worship. And yet because we have a sin nature, it's so easy for us to step away from what we're intended to worship and instead worship false things. So we have an internal mechanism that sets us apart to worship idols. And also we live in a culture that affirms the worship of false things. So internally and externally, we're tempted to walk away from God and worship other things. And there's a spiritual battle. Don't be naive to the fact that Satan wants you dead. And if he can't kill you, he'll distract you. And pull you away from the one true living God towards false things. This is what the nation of Israel repeatedly did. And Amos stepping forward, this farmer out of nowhere, saying, God hates your worship because you're idol worshiping. You're living in sexual immorality. You're oppressing the poor. I'm so glad that all these things are regulated to the Old Testament. <laughs> right? So I mentioned that Marie and I were in New York, and before you start examining the books of how much we get paid as pastors, uh, she's a nurse, and she got a scholarship from her work to go to New York for five days of training. And so I tagged along with her for this training. So every day we'd walk 30 blocks, and I'd drop her off at St. Mary's College. She'd do her training, and then I had from 9 to 5 to walk around Manhattan. And so I was like, hey, what am I going to do during this time? So I'm just proud of my steps. I wanted to show you I had 29,000 steps one day. <laughs> and I walked around and I discovered the bull on Wall Street. And you look at the golden calves that were set up in Bethel and Dan and the ancient nation of Israel. And then you walk down Wall Street and you run into the charging bull and you go, whoa, we're not that far removed, are we? 
This statue was dropped off, I think, in the 80s. It was guerrilla art. It was not permissioned or allowed. The guy just built it and then dropped it off, and it's stayed ever since. And it's become a tourist attraction right there in the city on Wall Street. And then on every subway and on the bus stops were advertisements in Manhattan for the Museum of Sex. It's a museum that glorifies pornography, that talks about how we've become such a liberated and free society that, that now we can have pornography in our midst and be okay with it and be in control. And so this museum's dedicated in Manhattan for that. Everywhere you go, as I walked my 29,000 steps, you literally had to step over homeless people. If you've been to New York City, you've seen this. The oppression or the forgottenness of the poor. This door right there is um, a historical monument in New York City to Margaret Sanger. Margaret was the founder of Planned Parenthood, which celebrates the tearing of babies from the womb. Margaret also, you may not know this, was a proponent of eugenics, which is the idea that certain races shouldn't have so many kids because they can't control them. So abortion or, plant or um, birth control helps crush that population and make it more manageable. New York City is dedicated a historical building to her. And then right across from the original Wall Street building, you have Trinity Church. For all you Hamilton fans from Broadway, Hamilton's actually buried right below this statue right there. This church, though, has a complicated history. They've done some really good things. In fact, in 9-11, this was a place of sanctuary and refuge for 9-11 workers. And yet, this Trinity Church also has compromised the gospel in so many ways. If you look around even their tombstones where Hamilton's buried, it's the who's who of the 1800s and 1900s of New York. It's, it was really a church where the wealthy gathered. It was a place to be made known by others. It's a church that was compromised, if I could boldly say it in that way. And so this is New York today. Amos accuses Israel of idol worship, sexual morality, oppression of the poor. New York City doesn't look a whole lot different than ancient Israel. But let me get even a little bit more personal. You and I don't look a whole lot different than ancient Israel. I am tempted every day towards worshiping things other than God. I'm tempted every day for sexual immorality. I'm tempted every day to ignore and oppress the poor, and you are too. But what are we to do? Because many times it's not just temptation, it actually turns into sin as we say yes to these things. Well, I came across a beautiful sign last weekend in New York. It's actually attached to the HBO building. And it says this, grace. In the middle of New York, in the middle of celebrating immorality and, and idol worship and, and people who have done horrible things, there's this word, giant lettering, grace. In your sermon outline, the third point in our sermon, that means we're getting close to ending, <laughs> it says the God of second chances. But I've been thinking about this the last three days. And I actually crossed out the word second, because a better way to say this is it's the God of chances. Amen? As Israel fell into immorality and 
idol worship and oppressing the poor. As we are tempted to fall into those things, and we have a history of falling into those things and sin, God gives us chance after chance after chance. And this statement is so true, and I love that this is true about our God. God's announcement of judgment always has an invitation of mercy attached to it. Drill down to Amos 5.4. Amos 5.4, in the midst of his judgment of the nation of Israel, he says these words. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. That word seek in the original Hebrew is derash, which means to pursue, follow, inquire. Dads, Father's Day. The best thing that we can offer our wives and our families and our kids is to be derash fathers. As much as our kids need our time and our wisdom and our money, <laughs> what they truly need from us, even if they can't even articulate it, is this. For us to be men who pursue, follow, and inquire of the Lord. Seek God and you will live. This is God's grace to the nation of Israel. This is God's grace to you and I. Because it's not just dads. It's all of us, right? And then the book of Amos ends. The very last few verses. Turn there, chapter 9. There's nine chapters in the book. And these are Amos' last recorded statements. One writer said, the first eight and a half chapters of Amos are thorns and thistles because they just talk about judgment and God's wrath. And then it says it gets to the roses and bouquet of Amos, which is the good news. Look at verse 11 of chapter 9. In that day I will raise up, I'll rise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord your God. It's beautiful words here. Now, from a theological, eschatological perspective, this is talking about the new heaven and new earth, the second coming of Christ, when he'll usher in the ultimate kingdom. But also, you can take into these passages the first incarnation of Jesus. That Jesus came into our world. He lived a life that you and I couldn't live. God sent his only son, knowing that we were sinners, knowing that we were immoral, that we worshiped false things, that we oppressed people lower than us. And yet God, in his great love, sent Jesus. Not for what he had done, but what you and I had done as sinners. And Jesus died on that cross, but the cross is empty. <laughs> because Jesus has risen again. He's conquered death. He's overcome sin. 
The back of sin has been broken. And Jesus is restoring us to the ultimate father. Isn't that a good message on Father's Day? It's true. And so Amos 9 points to that reality, that Jesus came once to cleanse sinners of sin, all those who believe in him by faith, and Jesus will come again. And the kingdom will ultimately be fulfilled. It's here, but not yet. But it's coming. One last thing. I mentioned that if you wanted to, you could Google the essay on uh, idols and Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair was a reference to Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Be a great summer reading if you're going away this summer. Pick up that book and read it. But this is David Paulison, the guy who wrote the essay on why we worship idols or why we're so tempted to worship idols. David, as I mentioned, passed away about a month ago of cancer. He leaves his three adult kids and wife, so this is a different Father's Day for them. David is a hero of mine. He's a theologian counselor in Philadelphia area. David grew up in Hawaii. He was actually a couple classes ahead of Obama at his high school. Went from his high school in Hawaii all the way to Harvard, to an Ivy League institution. It was at that Ivy League institution that he became a progressive. And not only a progressive, but he became a leader in the progressive movement at Harvard. We're going to change the world through socialism. And so he's leading the charge. He became the president of this club on his campus, promoting these ideals and, and values. He said in, in that moment, the only thing he understood about Jesus was that Jesus was kind, and Jesus said to be kind to the poor, which is true. But that's where it stopped for David. Then his senior year at Harvard, his roommate, who was a believer, sat David down, and he said, David, I love you. And I can't leave Harvard without telling you the greatest news ever, and that is that Jesus Christ came for you, a sinner, died on the cross for you, rose again to make you clean. David had all these logical reasons why he couldn't believe that. He said, I'm a stubborn man who didn't want saving. But ultimately, through the example of his roommate's life and, and tons of conversations back and forth, David, one night, came to the conclusion that he was a sinner. Just like the ancient nation of Israel, as, as Amos prophesied against. So David, one night in his room, cried out to God and said, God, I need you. I am a sinner who can't clean up my own act. Jesus, come into my life. He said he went to bed. He writes, he went to bed that night. And he didn't have fireworks go off or anything necessarily change in his life, but he just fell asleep. But then David writes that the next morning he woke up and he said he was filled with a joy that he had never experienced before. And David said, I'm a sinner who has come home. This is the God that we can run to as sinners, and he receives us by his mercy and his grace and says, welcome home. So here on this Father's Day, we're going to open it up in a moment. We're going to worship through a couple more songs. We have communion at different places around the room. If you want to remember the death, the life, the sacrifice of Jesus, you can partake in communion. But I also want to invite you at the prayer points to your left and your right. 
there'll be an opportunity today to come home. Come home to Jesus. Stop running, trying to clean yourself up, trying to ignore your sin. Come home. The sad thing is, as Amos declared to the people they needed to repent, they ended up ignoring his message. Don't ignore the message of Jesus today. Come home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you're the God of Amos and you're the God of us as we gather in this room. Thank you, God, that you won't tolerate sin because you're holy. But thank you that you sent Jesus to reconcile us to you. So God, I pray on this Father's Day, as we think about our earthly homes and fathers, that you would call those that don't know where they stand with you to their true home, with their heavenly Father, you. And we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.